In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever-merciful, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 1st of August, 2022. The time is 7.03 a.m. And you're listening to Daniel Sia live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam with another live edition of the Breakfast Show. Um, as is uh, the norm on this show, we talk about um, two talk topics on uh, the show. And... Um, uh, the number to call to uh, participate in the discussions on those two topics is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Right, the two topics that we shall be talking about today, the first one starting is about seven thirty a.m. is about the face mask pollution, the um, the pollution that face masks are actually uh, causing uh, all over the world, and what needs to be done about that. So that's the first topic. And the second topic, which we shall start around 8.15 a.m., is about child trafficking in the U.K. So something um, very serious. Please do join us in these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. Right. Uh, let's start with the headlines appearing in the newspapers today. So the... Um, England's historic win against Germany in Euro 2022 final dominates today's papers with jubilant pictures of the victorious team leading the coverage. The Daily Mirror opts for the headline, History Makers, accompanied by a full-page image of the elated England squad. The Lionesses won 2-1 in a dramatic final which went to extra time. No More Years of Hurt is the headline emblazoned on the front page of Metro as the paper notes that the Lionesses' victory ends England's 56-year wait for a trophy. The Sun is marking the momentous win with the double-edged page uh, spread of the with the double-page spread of the victorious football team accompanied by the headline Move Over Fellas It's Home. In its lead photo, the Lionesses lift the Euro trophy as they take to the podium cheering beneath falling confetti. They showed male stars how it's done as football finally came home yesterday, the paper comments. The Daily Mail says that where the Lions had so often fought and failed, the Lionesses came and conquered. Its headline is, it wasn't a dream we did beat Germany in a final. The paper carries a quote from the Queen to the champions, which reads, Your success goes far beyond the trophy you have so deservedly earned. You have all set an example that will be an inspiration for girls and women today and for future generations. It's home, says the Daily Express, with a full-page photo of the England team celebrating. The paper notes that the champions were cheered on by 87,000 fans at Wembley and millions at home. It's the biggest crowd in the history of a men's or women's Euros. The Guardian calls the team Game Changers. The paper's um, lead story says that as captain Lee Williamson, Williamson lifted the trophy in celebration, it felt simultaneously like the end of one, one journey and the beginning of another. Um, and finally, the... Um, the Daily Telegraph also marks the huge sporting win with a photo of the champions taking up half of the paper's front page. Away from the football, the paper reports on Tory leadership hopeful Rishi Sunak's pledge to cut income tax to its lowest level in 30 years as he vows 
to cut the basic rate from 20% to 16% if he gets the keys to number 10. The move has been branded a tactical flip-flop by a source in Liz Trust Camp, according to the paper. Right. Um, and at this juncture, let me uh, welcome my co-host um, for the show, Imam Shahzeb. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the show. Assalam. How are you, brother Danian? Very good. Really good to see you this morning. Likewise. No, Did it's a, it's a very good morning because of the brilliant news of our lionesses. Yeah. And it's something that we should all celebrate, really. You know, how many? Fifty-six years. Yeah, fifty-six years. Absolutely. Fifty-six years. That's man. a long time. Yeah. That's a long time. That's a lifetime. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um. But, you know, it's here now and we should definitely celebrate and commemorate the, the win and, uh, you know, be proud of uh, the nation, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, beating Germany in the final in extra time. Uh, did you watch the game? No, unfortunately, I couldn't right. watch the game. No. Okay. But, well, um, I, I did a bit of it. My daughters uh, certainly were, were glued to the TV. But, uh, yeah, it's it's quite an event, um, absolutely, as we can see from... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, from uh, the headlines in the newspapers. No, definitely it is. And, um, you know, they will definitely go down in history. The men's team, you know, has now something to, um, you know, the, 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 well, the men's team really. yeah, aspire to really, <laughs> but um, dare I say that. But the, the, the men's have different challenges and the women's yeah. team have had different challenges, but the end goal is the same for both of them regardless yeah. and to bring back a trophy which you know the women's team has done which is fantastic absolutely 100% right okay uh, on that note let's take a quick break and when we come back we will stay with uh, the headlines appearing in the newspapers today uh, a reminder of the two topics the first one is about face mask pollution or the pollution that face mask cause what needs to be done and then we shall be talking about um, uh, around 8.15 a.m. onwards, the child trafficking that still takes place in the UK and what can be done about that and how deep is that problem. Please do join us in these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall be back right after this quick break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A revolutionary change was brought in the Arabian Peninsula by the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him. He established a fair society, respect for women, and created brotherhood amongst the various tribes in his very lifetime. He promoted education in numerous ways changing the entire landscape of Arabian society. People who were previously looked down upon soon became leaders in all aspects of human life. The Holy Quran commanded Muslims to spread throughout the world and experience the vastness of God's creation. Within a few hundred years, a relatively short span of time, Muslims became the educators of the world. They became pioneers in medicine, physics, history, geology, and civil and military administration. During the centuries of European history, defined as medieval, the most advanced civilization in the world was undoubtedly Islam. In a time spanning close to a thousand years, an era known as Islam's golden age. The holy founder of Islam, peace be upon him, 
placed great emphasis on learning. His specific instruction was to seek knowledge from the cradle to the grave. It is the quest for knowledge which opens the doors of progress, where Muslim minds seek not only to prove their own genius, but to implement it for the service of their creator. Islam's rapid spread during the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and under the leadership of the rightly guided Khulafa, precipitated what is commonly referred to as the Golden Age of Islam, a period which ushered in immense contributions to philosophy, science, engineering and governance. The development of modern medicine, astronomy and mathematics, the refinement of algebra and trigonometry and the use of optics in a physical manner are all legacies from the Islamic era. Muslim scientists brought both knowledge and application into inventions which are still pertinent to modern life today. Small tools ranging from scissors all the way up to complex water-powered pumping machines and standardised weighing scales were all invented by Muslim scientists. Indeed, their legacy lives on, but it's not just through the machines themselves, but also the words, many of which are derived from Arabic origin. Words include algebra, algorithm, alchemy and camera are all derived from root Arabic origin. In the 8th century, Khalid the goat herder noticed his excitable animals had eaten red berries, which led to coffee production and the early Arabic drink al-Qahwa. This surfaced in Europe at the first Venice coffee house in 1645, making it the world's favourite hot beverage today. In the 8th century, Jabir ibn Khayyan devised and perfected the distillation process using the alembic still, which is still used today. Muslims were producing rose water, essential oils and pure alcohol for medical use. Today, distillation has given us products ranging from plastics all the way to petrol. Early 13th century, Al-Jazari was the first person to use a crank which transmits rotary motion into linear motion. His machines were able to raise huge amounts of water without anyone lifting a finger. Muslims also pioneered use of alternative energy through windmills and the construction of dams and water reservoirs. The invincible designs of 12th century castles of Syria and Jerusalem were imitated in Western lands with key features like round towers, arrow slits, barbicans and battlements. Muslim architecture techniques of the 8th and 10th century, such as rib vaulting, the pointed and horseshoe arch, were the main inspiration on which Gothic architecture was based. These techniques enabled European architects to overcome problems in Romanesque vaulting and are prevalent in surviving Gothic architecture all across Europe today. More than a thousand years ago, in a darkened room known as Gamara in Arabic, Ibn al-Khaytham observed light coming through a small hole in the window shutters, producing an upside-down image on the opposite wall. This early pinhole camera has led to the camera we know today. In the 13th century, Ibn al-Khaldum traced the rise and fall of human societies in the science of civilization, recording it all in his famous book, Al-Muqadimah, or Introduction to a History of the World, which forms the very basis of sociology and economic theory today. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, He who issues forth in search of knowledge is busy in the cause of Allah till he returns from his quest. In this hadith, travellers emphasised in relation to the seeking of knowledge, and the emphasis on movement intertwined with knowledge refers to the pilgrimage to Mecca, 
This emphasis on movement alongside knowledge seeking became a dominant cultural aspect of medieval Islam. Perhaps one of the most famous explorers of all time, Ibn Battuta, travelled over 75,000 miles in 29 years' time through over 40 modern countries, compiling one of the best eyewitness accounts of the customs and practices of the medieval world. Muslims were also the first people to commonly hold the idea of a round earth. In the 11th century, Al-Idrisi was commissioned by the Norman king of Sicily to make a map. He produced an atlas of 70 maps called the Book of Roger, showing the earth was round. Al-Idrisi also made a globe out of silver to further stress the point. Maths, known as the language of nature, has been an integral part of Islamic science, as well as developing existing Greek concepts like trigonometry and giving us the numerals we use today. In the 8th century, Al-Khwarizmi introduced the beginnings of algebra and it was developed into a form we still use today by many Muslims who followed him. Second World War problem solvers were carrying on the code-breaking tradition first written about by polymath Al-Gindi from Baghdad when he described frequency analysis and laid the foundation of cryptology. Cutting-edge surgeon Al-Zahrawi introduced over 200 surgical tools that revolutionised medical science more than 1,000 years ago. These tools look identical to modern-day 21st century tools used in various types of surgery. It was the gravitational pull of Khilafat that precipitated the rapid progress of Islam during its golden era. Once Khilafat, on the precept of prophethood, ended, the dominance of Islam soon began to fade. Today, the renaissance of Islam continues in the form of Khilafat in Ahmadiyyat, instituted after the demise of the promised Messiah, alayhi salam. As with the holy founder of the community, the Khulafa over the past 100 years have written numerous books embodying a massive amount of religious information. Under the divinely inspired leadership of Khilafat, therefore, the gravitational pull of unity is restored and the golden era of Islam is once more within sight. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. as May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show. From the Southland Studios of Voice of Islam, you're listening to Daniel Zai and Imam Shahzeb Athar. And um, a reminder of the two topics of uh, the day. The first one is about the pollution that face mask, masks cause. What can we do about that? And then uh, we shall talk about child trafficking in the UK. 
Right. Uh, the first topic, we shall start at around 7.30. So please do join us in both of these discussions by calling us at 0208687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Imam Shahzeb, um, any um, any news that uh, caught your eye this morning? Yes. Um, I mean, we all are aware of the rise in inflation, the rise in the cost of living. Right. And that has had a effect on mortgages. And there's an article in front of me um, from the BBC which has talked about the um, mortgage borrowing rules being eased by some of the um, lenders. And this is because of the uh, Bank of England, um, whereby they've scrapped an affordability test. And so this test was named the stress test. And effectively, this forced lenders to calculate whether potential borrowers would be able to cope if interest rates climbed um, up to 3%. And so what they've done now is they've removed this test, and they're saying this will help potential borrowers get loans um, such as your self-employed or freelance workers. But that doesn't mean the other rules which um, are in place um, will be scrapped, such as the strict loan-to-income limits. Um, you know, It will not make it easier for most people to get a mortgage. And the withdrawal of the affordability test was announced in June, but will come into effect this morning. Um, and... Mark Harris, who is the chief executive of mortgage broker SPF Private Clients, states that scrapping the affordability test is not as reckless as it may sound. The loan-to-income framework remains so there will still be some restrictions in place. It is not turning to a free-for-all on the lending front. Lenders will also still use some form of testing, but to their own choosing according to their risk appetite. So in other words, there will be not an immediate impact for borrowers as lenders will not need to change the way they assess loans. So we are finding some forms of um, ease within the the world of uh, mortgages um, when it comes to the whole scenario as it is right now. Um, and in any case, I think the interest rate right now for, you know, um, properties is around sort of the 2.73% mark. So it's pretty high. Um, and these um, relaxations which we've been granted, I think, will help a lot of people in the long run. Right. Thank you very much for that, uh, Imam Athar. Um, another news uh, that I was looking at, um, another article rather, that I was looking at this morning in The Guardian is about UK businesses slashing investments due to soaring prices and Brexit. <laughs> Uh, so, according to this article, UK business uh, business leaders are slashing investment plans, as soaring prices, Brexit trading difficulties, and political uncertainty all leave bosses pessimistic about the economic outlook. As many firms are now planning to cut investments as to increase it, according to the um, Institute of Directors, latest poll of business chiefs, uh, this is the weakest reading since twenty uh, since October twenty twenty. As nervous firms rein in spending, UK business investments intentions have been falling steadily since the start of the year as input costs have soared and the economy has slowed, undermining efforts to lift productivity. Business leaders are also less upbeat about their own prospects 
with over half saying economic conditions in the UK are having a negative impact on their organization, along with soaring energy costs and skills shortages. The IOD's Economic Confidence Index, which measures business leaders' view of the economic prospects, remained very low at minus 54 in July, only slightly higher than June's minus 60. 69% of bosses were either very or quite pessimistic about UK economy, while just 15% were optimistic about the outlook. Inflation, something you mentioned in Malmathar as well, now at 40-year high, was the most common reason for the pessimism, cited by a third of the firms. Nearly 20% of pessimistic bosses said difficulties in the UK's trading relationship with the EU were their main worry, as the introduction of custom checks and delays at the borders have hampered exports. Perceived risks in the macroeconomy continue to drive the behaviour of business leaders in July with concerns around inflation, our relationship with the EU and political instability causing investment tensions increasingly to be put on hold. This according to Kitty Usher, who is the chief economist at the Institute of Directors. So, um, pretty, um, um, uh, pretty grim picture there. Uh, by the um, uh, by, the Institute of Directors. It is indeed, and it's a shame because your analysts and experts, you know, were predicting before this Ukraine nonsense were predicting that you know the, the economy was um, growing, and mm. you know we would we would you know double figures of inflation wasn't even in the picture, um, mm. but naturally things have taken a different uh, turn and a, a worse turn, and um, it's had a dramatic effect on. Um, Everything really now, you know, I've got a piece here in front of me um, which talks about, you know, fuel tax cuts in UK um, is amongst the lowest in the whole of the Europe. Um, and, you know, it's stating that the UK cut fuel duty by 5p a litre in March, but the RAC says this looks paltry when compared to elsewhere. The government says that the duty will save the average driver £100 a year. And UK petrol prices, as we all know, have hit... Uh, you know records uh, this year um but having said that you know some um, petrol pumps have reduced their petrol prices and fuel prices have increased sharply because the price for crude oil which is used to make petrol and diesel and that's all gone up and oil prices jumped following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February which is well documented um but they had already been rising as demand rose following the lifting of COVID restrictions. So, in essence, you know, there are other parts um, of Europe, for example, Germany, where, you know, the equivalent of 25p a litre in tax off um, in, in petrol, you know, has been granted to those civilians there. In Italy, 21 pence. In Portugal, 20, uh, 16 pence um, of relief has been granted. Um and we are at uh, five people. So I think there needs to be that element of ease um, pushed down towards your consumer. And, you know, this is going to be a big, big question for the incoming prime minister. You know, just yesterday, I think uh, Rishi Sunak was promising that he would take off 4p um, of everyone's income tax, which is, um, you know, something at least. Um and he said this would amount to a 20% tax reduction. Um, and his words are that this will be the largest cut to income tax in 30 years. So, 
you know, that is the incentive for the incoming prime minister, for, you know, the Tory party members to consider when it does come to making sure that everybody's needs in terms of how much money they can save is at the top of the order. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much uh, for that. Right. Uh, so that concludes our uh, segment uh, about current affairs and um, and headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Uh, a reminder of the two topics. So the first topic, which we shall start um, in a couple of minutes time, is about the pollution that face masks cause. What can we do about that? And the second topic is about child trafficking in the UK. Uh, what are the issues and what is being done about that? So both um, very pertinent topics, uh, uh, very topical as well. Please do stay tuned um, and join us in these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878 or tweeting us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall be back after these very this very quick break. And when we come back, we shall delve right into the first topic, which is about the pollution that face masks cause. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. And welcome back to the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam. Just before the break, we were going through some of the um, morning papers and seeing what the headlines were. But it's time now that we move towards our first segment of this morning, which was face mask pollution and what needs to be done. And so, as we all know, in 2020, with the rising cases of COVID there was an increase in face mask usage across the world with increased usage of one use or disposable masks meant that there had been an increase of face mask pollution and this segment now will explore the increase in this pollution and the impact of this and the responses to COVID-19 have resulted Uh, in increased use of certain products made from long-lasting single-use plastics. And this is putting pressure on the world's already excessive plastic waste problem and increased production and consumption of masks and gloves, which have been essential to protect people's health, has resulted in additional greenhouse gas and other emissions, as well as litter that can harm ecosystems and animals. Now, although plastics play a crucial role in the healthcare and public health sectors, a recent study shows that how we are treating and disposing of plastic waste is not keeping up with the increased demand for the material. 
Globally, 65 billion gloves are used every month. The tally for face masks is nearly twice that, 129 billion a month. That translates into 3 million face masks used per minute. Asia is estimated to throw away 1.8 billion face masks daily, the highest quantity of any continent globally. China, with the world's largest population of 1.4 billion, discards nearly 702 million face masks daily. Face masks, gloves and wipes are made from multiple plastic fibres, primarily polypropylene, that will remain in the environment for decades, and possibly centuries, fragmenting into smaller and smaller microplastics and nanoplastics. A single face mask can release as many as 173,000 microfibers per day into the seas, according to a study in the environmental advances. So what are the uh, impacts of face mask pollution? And are there any alternative solutions? Well, to cut the elastic straps on disposable masks before discarding them and to prevent wildlife from being harmed is one solution. Mask pollution has put uh, wildlife and uh, oceanic wildlife at a major risk. Michelle C. Harlow, a member of the Society of Environmental Journalists, said the elastic strings attached to the masks um, which are placed behind your ears are a problem for birds and sea creatures. And it has become common to see animals entangled or with these strings around their necks. Consider recyclable, reusable and eco-friendly face masks alternatives. Many specialists have advised of the use of facial coverings made of reusable cotton. However, with the rise of the Omicron variant, it is recommended that people use a KN95 or N95 or KF94 face mask for optimal protection from the virus. These masks have the ability to be reused and worn several times before being discarded. Properly dispose of your face masks into trash bins, as this can make a significant difference in the health of the ecosystem by enhancing the appearance of the environment and reducing wildlife contact. Take action by volunteering in the community. Um, And if you see a dirty discarded mask lying on the ground, simply help the environment by picking up the mask. So there are solutions to the this you know new issue, should we say? Um, and the best way to go about it is to certainly make sure that we you know, do our part and make sure that we are proactive in this, because the issue of uh, plastic and plastic waste has been prevalent for you know decades. So yeah. to make sure that we reduce this issue, you know, we all need to play our part and and certainly um, prevent, you know, ecosystems and wildlife being harmed in any other manner, um, which will certainly be detrimental to our, you know, wildlife altogether. Absolutely. I mean, it's common sense, really. And, and, and it, you know, it's so true. This uh, this is a big problem. We, we see face masks. You know, I'm walking on the street and, you know, the face masks strewn all over the place on the footpaths, uh, um, um, in, in, even in the gardens. Um, yeah, on on tubes, uh, on stations, 
they're just everywhere and it's just common sense that we've just got to be you know make sure that we we're using something which uh, which we can reuse and um, instead of just using once and then throwing away and then making sure that we're also disposing uh, them off properly uh, and using um, uh, biodegradable materials as well um, let's talk more uh, now with Gary Stokes uh, from ocean ocean Asia Born in the UK, Gary was raised in the Mediterranean, where his love affair with the ocean first formed. He's been living in Asia for the past 32 years, where he's worked as a professional photographer and drive and diving instructor. His images have been used in most major news agencies and publications. He became an effective ocean advocate and follows a no-compromise approach when it comes to those inflicting harm on the marine ecosystem. Assalamu alaikum. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Excellent, Gary. Well, yeah, a no compromise, no nonsense approach is, is what we need uh, in these times. Uh, uh, absolutely. So thank you very much for that. Um, it, but let me ask you, what 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 comprises uh, of the no compromise approach that that you take? Well, yes, I mean, <laughs> so the no compromise approach was basically uh, from the original very first Sea Shepherd campaign that I joined. I used to run Sea Shepherd um, in Asia. Right. And uh, we went to Antarctica and chased the Japanese whalers and it was, uh, the operation was called No Compromise. And um, it pretty much founded, you know, in, in me exactly the stance that we, we need to be making at the moment. Um, there's too much talking and there's too much hmm. compromise um, you know, with some of the people that are actually doing the, the most harm to the planet, you know, whether that's fishing com you know, companies, oil companies, things like that. And at the end of the day, we have one planet, we have one life support system. Mm. And, um, you know, when somebody is trying to, I, I, as a diver, as you mentioned, I, I, I'm also a diving instructor. Um, if you're on a dive and imagine somebody's turning off your air supply, mm. I think you'd have a pretty no, yeah. no compromise uh, yeah. stance on on that, and that's right. kind of in the in the real world. What's really happening is slowly we're turning off our air supply, um, we're, we're wiping out ecosystems, um, and putting everything out of balance. And we need to be putting that first, business second, you know, um, and that's that's pretty much where my approach comes from and, and uh, absolutely right and i cannot agree more uh, but uh, are are you and are we winning uh, this war this battle because um uh, you know we're up against pretty uh, pretty big business interests um and and probably also government interests so just to give you uh, yes, one statistic yeah. um um I think it was um, six million tons. Uh, that was uh, six million tons of plastic waste and, and other waste that was exported from the UK um, last year to third world countries. Do you think that's the solution? No, absolutely. Um, so I, I, I've been living in Hong Kong for thirty-two years. I've mm -hmm. just recently, last week, moved back to the UK after thirty-two years. Um, and one of the one of the biggest things, I mean, obviously, living in China, working in China, um, we all the world used to basically um, receive everything from China and send all of its waste back to China to deal with. And then a few years ago, China put up what we called the Green Wall, and they've just said, 
enough. We're not taking all your rubbish anymore. And that was that was interesting then to see what all the you know governments around the world resorted to do. Um, it was almost a case of right, it's your mess. You need to come up with methods to to handle it or reduce it. Um, and it was it was quite sad and quite telling to see what some of these countries, more the Western countries, their solution was just find another Asian country to dump it on. And that was Malaysia. We've seen some go to Vietnam, Indonesia. Um, and, you know, rather than actually deal with the problem, Absolutely. reduce hmm. and, uh, you know, recycle as much as you can, but mainly reduce. We just need to be uh, thinking a bit smarter with what we're using and how we're using. Plastic is not a bad product. It's just we're using it for single use, which is ridiculous when you have a material that can last for hundreds of years. Um, and that's uh, that's the main problem with plastic. And uh, yeah, shipping it to Malaysia, um, and obviously Malaysia's uh, getting money for that, which mm. is sad because that money probably won't be going to the people that are going to have to suffer from all this income of waste. Absolutely, and as you like you said, you know, we, we this is one world. This is just this is one planet. Oh, everything is interconnected. Oceans are interconnected. It's it's just uh, it's just silly to to think that you know the problem is going to go away if you just ship it to. Um, it's it's probably colonial mentality. Yeah, very much colonial mentality, and it's 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 disgusting, um, in my opinion. Um, as somebody who's been living in Asia and, and has been seeing it firsthand, mm-hmm. um, you know, just dumping it on, a, on another developing country is uh, is not the solution. Um, where do you stand on uh, on the the debate um, uh, around the overall you know environmental debate about? Um, the role that China needs to play, um, for example, you know, China, India, and some other countries, uh, developing countries, Brazil, um, come into fire a lot in um, uh, in world conferences and in the media as well ab- about the role that uh, the perceived role that they are not playing um, in terms of um, fighting. Um, yeah, the yeah. the um, uh, you know this this battle um, uh, about climate change, whereas U.S. is still the biggest uh, polluter, and also the fact that you know whatever China produces. So you know I have a, a plastic uh, glass um, on my table over here. I have another plastic cup uh, which holds my coffee, and um, both of them probably were manufactured in China but consumed here. So yeah, so the demand is yep. is is from the West. So where yeah. do you sort of stand on that? Well, China China became the factory of the world, hmm. um, and that was quite convenient for the rest of the world, um, because obviously, with any manufacturing, normally around it comes you know, waste and air pollution and things like that. Um, and because they have a cheap workforce in China, so you know it was a perfect perfect recipe for becoming the factory of the world. And and you're you're completely right. I mean. Everything is made in China and shipped out. Um, and when it comes to the blame, um, from, from what I've seen, um, it's it's a lot of the blame actually goes to Western media. Mm. Um, living in China, seeing what's going on, there are. I, I used to call it the "just do it" country because mm. China just does things. They don't right. brag about it. They don't boast about it. They just get on with it. Mm. Uh, for example, 
uh, I think it was 2016, they installed more solar power than any anywhere in the world. Sure. I mean, they, more than Australia had in its entire lifetime. Okay. But they didn't tell anybody. They just mm. did it. Um, there are so many green projects going on in China mm. that nobody knows about. Why? Because mostly the media don't want to talk about it. They want to paint China um, and Russia as well at the moment, obviously, um, as the bad guys. And we're the good guys. And, and that's that's completely wrong. As you pointed out, America is still the biggest polluter. Mm. Yeah, you're right. So, it's, uh, and it's sad. Uh, absolutely sad. Uh, Mam Shazib, uh, you had a question. Gary, in 2020, Ocean Asia released a report on the rise of face masks and marine plastic pollution. What were the findings of this report? Well, yes. Um, so so the, the masks, we were actually on the beach in the Soko Islands, which is a, a collection of islands to the southwest of, of Hong Kong. They're actually uninhabited. And that's why I do a lot of my marine plastic studies and in uh, February of 2020, just after COVID really just started in Wuhan and, and was just entering Hong Kong, we suddenly started seeing face masks washing up on the beach. And it was quite alarming on this uninhabited beach within six weeks of starting to use masks, we suddenly started seeing them washing up. And we had in one 100 meter stretch of beach, we had about 80 masks. And this was right at the very beginning. So we just took one photo, the photo of me holding up the masks, and I just casually put it out on Instagram and, and said, uh, you know, we need to be a bit more responsible, you know, where we put our masks, our disposable masks, because at the time it was right at the very beginning. Um, we had you know, half a million views, I think it was in the first 24 hours, all the news networks. Um, but then all the questions started coming in about masks, and that's when we came up with it. We needed to do a report so we could answer some more of those questions, or at least get an answer, a conservative answer. Mm. So, you know, um, we have a research arm led by Dr. Tilfelps Bondoroff, um, and our research team went through all the materials they could get. And one of the hardest things is working out the production levels of the masks during the pandemic i mean obviously everything was ramping up really fast some people some countries were um keeping really good records of how many they were making but anyway um the conclusion came we we basically using a conservative loss of three percent which is what most of the uh, reports around the world you know un reports things like that for marine uh, for plastic entering the marine environment three percent so at three to four grams per mask that came to between four thousand six hundred eighty and six thousand two hundred tons of face masks entering the ocean in 2020 which was a total of 1.56 billion masks um and that's a conservative number i mean we it's probably a lot higher um, but the problem with these masks is obviously they enter the ocean they break down i mean there's another um key word that's used in a very inappropriate way is degrade. So when something is biodegradable, it means it breaks down. If it's plastic, it breaks down into smaller and smaller particles. Um, and that's the problem we're seeing with these masks is the microplastics that are coming off of these masks, the, what they shed as they're in the ocean. Uh, as they break up with the sunlight and the wave motion, they just break into tiny, tiny fragments. So, yeah, we're looking at a huge problem, um, and that's only part of a very small 
small part of a bigger problem. I mean, we're, we're putting between 8 to 12 million tons of plastic in the ocean every year. So the masks are like the drinking straw was for, you know, plastic in our everyday lives. Masks is just another icon of what we're doing at the moment. And, and Gary, since the report was published, has there been any notable differences um, in face mask pollution? Um, it depends on which country we're going. We're talking about um, in in Hong Kong, for example, nothing happened. Everybody still uses uh, single-use masks. Mm. You go onto the subway, you get everywhere. Um, other countries have seen a massive change towards reusable masks, cloth masks, and also it depends on also the the general rules that the governments are imposing. I mean, some places lifted the mask ban. Some places, like Hong Kong, you still have to wear a mask everywhere, inside, outside, doesn't matter, 24-7, you have to wear a mask. You can only take it off to eat and drink, put it back on. Whereas other countries, obviously, have lifted it. I've returned to the UK and I'm just surprised. It's like COVID never happened. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's that. But we've also had governments uh, contact us. They've been using the report for their waste management procedures, um, using it, you know, in those terms. Um, so I think we had Yemen contacted us and Dubai. So, you know, the report is actually being used by, by governments as a sort of you know, reference material to give them some ideas of what to do. Okay, and... In terms of what we can do um, to stop contributing to pollution caused by face masks, what are sort of, you know, our responsibilities? What what are, you know, the small bits and bobs that we can do? Well, yeah, I mean, just just like every everything else with plastic, I mean, just just start considering uh, your individual footprint, um, and if that means you know switching to a reusable mask, you know, we we've been very careful because. Ever since the very beginning, we, we have actually supported wearing a face mask. I mean, it worked in Hong Kong for the first two years of the pandemic. We had, you know, we were right next to the epicenter you know, near Wuhan. And our numbers, we only had like 200 dead in a city of 7.5 million people. So I believe still that face masks did work. They, they did actually save it. But like everything, as you move forward, we need to get a bit more sustainable. If we're going to be wearing them every single day for a year, even if you use one a day, one a day, that's 365 masks. That's a lot. Times that by 7.5 million, which was in Hong Kong. That's a hell of a lot of masks. So if you can, switch to a reusable. Uh, if you're going into a, a medical environment like the doctors or, or the hospital, then yes, sure, wear a medical mask. The problem was, or the problem wasn't, the medical facilities because they've always used masks and they always dispose of them correctly. They have incinerators on site normally and they just get rid of all their medical waste. So, you know, it, it that's that's kind of our message is, is if you can, switch to a reusable if you have to use masks. Right. And if you broaden this, uh, this discussion slightly, um, uh, Gary, and, and, and to the earlier point that we were making, what about single-use plastics? What is the sensible thing to do there? Well, I think one of the one of the saddest things that's come out of COVID, obviously, um, in in the environmental movement, has been the setback to plastics. 
leading up to COVID-19, we saw massive steps forward um, with you know, companies coming in place and reducing their single-use plastic and swapping it out for something else, whether that was paper or another you know, degradable product. Um, what we have seen, obviously, with, with COVID-19 coming out, we've had everything has been knocked back. Everything has gone back. I, mean, I used to go into a bakery, and they were actually individually wrapping every single item in a plastic bag. So, you know, for, mm. for hygiene, and we can't knock that, but we need to remember now where we were three years ago, and get back to that point so we can keep moving forward because it was it was really gaining momentum. Mm. Um, you know, whether that was it wasn't just re- reducing you know how many straws or plastic bags, but every single item. If everybody took one item out of their everyday life every week, we would fix this problem very, very quickly. Um, and what I always say is we need to just look back 40 years, what we used to do, you know. Um, <laughs> reusable bags are not a new invention. My mother used to keep hers on the back of the kitchen door. When we used to go out shopping, it was pick up your bag and, and let's go. You'd never think about going out shopping without your bag. Mm. Um, mm. And, and that's kind of where we were with the straws. I I started a movement in Hong Kong called the Last Straw Movement, which mm. was introducing paper straws. Because mm. um, nice. that's what we had as kids, but they were useless. Mm. They, they went soggy and compacted, but yeah. we, we perfected them. And you know, So it's, it's individual choice, what you can do, but we really need to reduce our, our plastic footprint. It's it's really about um, you know creation of new habits really and and, and uh, you know abandoning bad habits and and going back to old ways, uh, which is which is really about uh, yeah creation of new habits which the new generation the millennials are are probably not uh, not used to you know we live in a uh, in a very fast world and um, everything is um, is disposable these days including relationships, so, uh, but let's not go there. Um, okay, so. Uh, let me ask you a question on a, on a slightly different angle, so or from a different angle. Um, sing, plastics. Um, I was reading a report um, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, are, are now known to be uh, microplastics uh, or nanoplastics uh, are known to be present in our bloodstreams as well, and that obviously will have a major health impact um, is already having, I'm sure, a health impact, which uh, which will begin to be, I think, more apparent in a, in a few years' time. Do you think it would be helpful to to have the discussion in the media focused around the the health effects of, of using plastics um, as opposed to just pollution in the oceans? Because that, you know, that, that directly Ab- affects us. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we had, in 20, 2012, in Hong Kong, we had this uh, disaster when we lost six containers off of a ship that was carrying these microplastics, uh, the, 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 the beads, which was the raw, raw product of plastic. They're called nurdles. They're little round, like BB pellets. Um, and that was lost overboard in the storm, and all our beaches were covered. And obviously, the marine debris there was shocking, and it was visible. Um, I led the cleanup campaign with a lady called Tracy Reed, and when we sat down with the Hong Kong government and um, showed us some photos that we had taken at a fish farm. Now these fish farms, these floating aquaculture farms, had 
all the fish in. And as these pellets passed through the nets, the fish ate them and they filled their stomachs with plastic and then they were floating around upside down and died a miserable death. But it was only when we showed the pellets inside the guts of these fish as we were cutting them open that the penny dropped for the Hong Kong government and they realized this was a health issue. And I think, you know, the impact that has, when it's just somebody else's beach is dirty, nobody really cares. Hmm. Um, you know, because I just want to go to that beach, I'll go to another one that's cleaner. But when you realize it's actually getting into the food that you're eating, and when we talk about these microplastics, they break down and break down and break down and break down into tiny nanoparticles that small fish are eating. Well, the small fish are eaten by the bigger fish, and then the bigger fish are eaten by the bigger fish. So as it goes back up, it bioaccumulates into the fish, all the toxins. So when plastic goes into the ocean, what happens is it acts like a sponge, and any toxins or pollutants in the water get sucked into that plastic. When the fish eats that plastic, it goes into the the uh, belly of the fish and the flesh of the fish, the acidic acid in the stomach draws it out and it goes into the flesh of the fish so that's where we're the plastic is actually taking the toxic particles and delivering them to the flesh of the fish so if you're eating fish that's how you're getting these you know heavy metals and particles so yes that's where it is a major problem and and i think it's it's probably one of the biggest angles to be taking if we want people to start really taking plastic seriously. Excellent. Thank you very, very much, Gary. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, Thank you for uh, having me. Lovely talking to you. Um, and I and I, I just hope and wish uh, and pray that uh, you know people listen to uh, voices like yours and uh, who are making um, a great difference to the world we or, or trying to make a difference to the world we live in and uh, the world our future generations will, will live in. So thank you thank once you. again. Thank right. You. So that was uh, Gary Stokes uh, from Ocean Asia uh, uh, talking to us about um, about his take on what needs to be done about uh, the, generally the pollution that uh, plastics cause, but also uh, face masks uh, pollution. And um, I was talking um, about his experience having lived in uh, Hong Kong uh, for a long time. Right. Uh, we're now coming to um, very close to the eight o'clock news. Um, um, we will now take a quick break uh, for the news. And when we come back, we will continue talking about the pollution that uh, face masks are causing. What can we do about that? Uh, what can we do about uh, the pollution that uh, generally um, single-use plastics are causing around the world? So a lot more coming up on that. Please do stay tuned. We'll be back after the 8 o'clock news um, and these messages. <laughs> You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Today is Monday, the 1st of August, 2022, and we're talking about the face mask pollution, the, co- the, the pollution that face masks cause 
Um, what can we do about that? And before we went on to the break, we were talking uh, to Gary Stokes uh, from Ocean Asia. He was talking about his experience um, having lived in, in Hong Kong, and he was talking about um, uh, what um, uh, what we can do generally to to combat this. Um, this is this is of course a major problem um uh, Imam and this is something that i think needs immediate addressing um as well i think there are issues which um you know have been prevalent for many years and there were you know um pieces and bits and bobs which were uh, enacted to reduce those issues primarily the plastic issue which we're talking about but with the scenario of um, the covid pandemic um, and the use of single use masks you know this issue has been exacerbated and you know it's it's a, a very much a growing issue an issue which which will have detrimental effect on our ecosystems and the general health of each individual um, and it certainly needs to be addressed and promoted um, so that there is that level of awareness, which you know, I think is somewhat lacking with regards to this face mask, single-use face mask issue. So it needs to be um, addressed. It needs to be um, brought to people's attentions, so that we, you know, become the solution rather the um, the problem here. Right. Uh, let's go straight now to our next guest. Um uh, for this topic, uh, Natalie Fee from City to Sea. Uh, Natalie is an award-winning environmentalist, author, speaker, and founder of City to Sea, which is a UK-based organization running campaigns to stop plastic pollution. Assalamualaikum, peace be with you. Very warm welcome to the Breakfast Show. Thanks so much for having me on. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Natalie. So, um, right, City to Sea. Tell us more about that. Well, I started City to Sea back in 2015 in Bristol, where we're based, although our campaigns reach globally. And um, personally, I got engaged on the topic when I became aware of the effect it was having on marine wildlife around the world. But then one day in Bristol, I literally saw islands of plastic flowing down the River Avon mm. and realised that it was something happening closer to home. So I, I set about seeing what we could do about it. And then over the years, we've grown into a... Um, a great organisation and we tend to focus on stopping the top 10 most polluting single-use plastics found on our rivers and beaches in the UK. Natalie, you, you mentioned um, uh, the impact plastics are having on marine life. Um, I was talking earlier to uh, to Gary Stokes um, uh, and we, we talked about the impact this uh, has directly or indirectly on our health, on human health as well, because, uh, you know, many of those marines actually end up in our stomachs. Yeah, I mean, so it depends if you, ate, if you eat fish or not, but I mean, it's a huge problem for seas at large and our oceans, it's not just about the fish that we get from the oceans and the food that, that um, you know, two-thirds of the world depend on, mm. but our oceans give us the oxygen for every second breath yeah. we take which is a pretty powerful thought, isn't it? So the, the forests power one breath and the, and the oceans power that second breath. So they're essential to life on Earth. Um, but it's not just the fact that it's so once, once plastic's in the ocean, um, it never actually goes away. And it either our marine wildlife gets caught up in it, so like in the larger pieces of fishing gear that's floating around in the oceans, the marine wildlife gets entangled. 
um, and hundreds of thousands of animals at sea die every year from mistaking plastic for food and thinking it's a, a jellyfish or um, or some other kind of item of food. Um, so it, it's sort of causing harm directly in that way. And then, as you said, as we're as that plastic gets into the food chain, it's actually the smaller, um, like the plankton that are eating like the microplastics and then the larger animals eat that and, and those plastics and the toxins that are in those plastics and get attracted to those plastics in the sea do end up entering into our, um, our bloodstreams as well. And there's a lot of research coming out showing that the impact that microplastics has, not just at sea, but also we're breathing it in every day through our toys and our carpets and our soft furnishings and also through masks. And actually, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we know there's been an increase in pollution caused by PPE. How severe has this issue become? Well, I mean, it, it definitely peaked. Um, I think we're seeing it start to drop off now, thankfully, but it, it is a serious problem and was definitely a step backwards really from the amazing progress that campaigners and some governments were making to reduce the amount of plastic being produced um, and ending up in the waste streams. So, I mean, I think generally we've seen PPE becoming a problem for our streets and local environments. I mean, it's literally impossible to go for a walk now and not see a mask in the gutter or in a bush. Mm. Um, it's a problem in terms of plastic pollution in our rivers and seas and, and as we were talking about earlier, a threat to wildlife too, getting caught up in them. I saw a a, um, a seagull here in Bristol with a mask um, wrapped around its foot. So I think, you know, we see that, you know, ha- happening every day still. But in terms of volume, so at the end of last year, there was a study showing that almost 36,000 tonnes of PPE from the pandemic, that's around... Um, 2,000 double-decker buses worth had leaked into the ocean. So Mm -hmm. that's a lot of plastic. Um, And so, yeah, it's it's definitely a problem um, and and a step back from the work that we've been doing. But I think also we have to look at how the plastic industry responded. Um, They weren't in people's good books before the pandemic. They'd been getting a lot of bad press, and rightly so. Um, but we saw that during the pandemic, the plastics industry really saw it as an opportunity to get back in our good books um, and actually work to undermine environmental legislation and restrictions on plastic um, around the world. So we have to be mindful of what's happening behind the scenes as well. Mm-hmm. And what more needs to be done you know, to raise the awareness regarding the ocean pollution? Well, I think actually what you guys are doing this morning is brilliant. Um, we need to keep talking about the issue in the media and sharing stories and studies and sharing things on our own social media channels, talking to our friends and family and our communities, getting involved with things like Plastic Free July, um, generally so that more people become aware of the increasing problem with plastic pollution because it's not going away. Plastic production is expected to triple by 2050 and that's expected to double plastic pollution in our oceans so it's not it's not slowing down and the um plastics plastic pollution and and climate change are two sides of the same coin because plastic is made from fossil fuels so we really don't want plastic pollution to be ramping up in the way that it is currently so i think doing what you're doing let's keep talking about it 
let's keep signing petitions. If, if people want to sign up to our plastic-free journal, which is a, a free newsletter to help people live with less plastic, um, they can do that on our, via our website and we can tell people how to like do more than just sort of change to using less plastic at home, but things like emailing their MP or organising a, a local event or film screening in their local communities. Fantastic. And the, the PPE um, pollution, which, you know, um, which we've been talking about, will that or has that had an effect on our oceans? It absolutely has, yeah. I mean, people are um, were, were very early on in the pandemic were finding PPE in um, the bottom at the bottom of our oceans already and the Mediterranean. Um, I haven't got the study to hand, but there were just um, divers very early on were finding PPE in our oceans. And again, marine wildlife has been getting caught up and entangled in it. But the, the problem is not just the large items of plastic getting into the ocean it's how the plastic never actually goes away when it's when it's in the ocean it just gets broken down into smaller and smaller pieces so those microplastics end up forming a very toxic plastic soup in our oceans so yeah they very much are affecting our uh, our oceans as well as our rivers fantastic well natalie it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this morning thank you so much for taking time out and hopefully we can speak in the very near future Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. That's Natalie Fee, an award-winning environmentalist, author, speaker and founder of City to Sea. Um, and it's you know, brilliant to always have these guest callers that can help us navigate through these segments with their expertise and knowledge. Absolutely. Um, because by no means are we environmentalists or, sp <laughs> or specialists in, in said field. So, Well, well you are um, uh, an expert when it comes to um, Islamic uh, perspectives. Um, so uh, let me ask you this so you know looking at it from a purely islamic perspective what what would what can we draw from islamic teachings when it comes to uh to pollution to um uh to being a good samaritan really i think we have to look at the founder of our uh, leader or, or founder of our religion rather and see his character and his character was of such that, you know, he conserved um, and made sure that everything that was used on this earth wasn't abused, wasn't um, there to be monetized. And, you know, in the greatest sense, he was an individual who cared for the planet and knew that this planet is um, to be inherited and to make sure that it's passed on um, in a similar or even in a better state than he received. So what we find is that various um, verses within the Holy Quran also stipulate the fact that we need to make sure that this planet is looked after otherwise you know all hell will, will break loose. Um, you know chapter um, verse 42 of chapter Rome states that corruption has appeared on land and sea because of what men's hands have wrought uh, that he may make them taste the fruit of, of some of their doings so that they may turn back from evil and create not disorder in the earth after it has been set in order and call upon him in fear and hope surely the mercy of Allah is nigh unto those who do good so in essence responsibility as Muslims has been laid 
look after the earth um, and indeed our fellow human beings. And Islam teaches that on the day of judgment, humans will be accounted for their deeds, good or bad. And a just treatment towards humans, animals, plants, the earth, the overall environment is crucial for achieving good deeds. And, you know, the various other verses um, which, you know, um, promote looking after the planet, making sure that, you know, um, what we do here on, on this earth will be accounted for. And so, in essence, you know, our actions will most certainly have consequences. And if we are knowingly, you know, throwing away a plastic or, or rather littering and, and not conserving the planet's not following the basic Islamic principles of making sure that you know we look after both ourselves and our, and the people around us and indeed the planet that we've been given you know in chapter 58 verse 7 stated on the day when Allah will raise them all together he will inform them of what they did Allah has kept account of it while they forget it and Allah is a witness over all things and in chapter 57, verse 26, it stated, There is good and bad in everything. Balance is the key. Verily, we sent our messengers with manifest signs and sent down with them the book and the balance that people may act with justice. And we sent down iron, wherein is material for violent warfare, and many benefits for mankind, and that Allah may distinguish those who help him and his messengers without having, without having seen them. Surely Allah is powerful and mighty. And, you know, the character, the noble character of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was such that, you know, we find um, in his in his being a, um, a character of a great amount of respect for this planet. You know, it's stated that the best action in the sight of Allah is that which is done with regularity, be it small. And in essence, if every Amdi Muslim uh, remembers this, they will be more likely to perform their duties as a Muslim more effectively, because this planet, as we all know, is not our creation, and nor it is you know our possession. It is Allah's gift to us, and you know, to thank Him, we must keep it clean and protect it from harm. So, yeah, there's no real rocket science, or there isn't um, you know a great amount to it, apart from making sure that we do our bit. Um, both from a moral standpoint and both from a point of responsibility, um, which is most certainly um, a duty for all, regardless of if we follow religion or not. Absolutely, duty it, it certainly is, and duty certainly is um, because of the circumstances and the times uh, we live in. Uh, right, okay. Uh, that brings us um, uh, towards the end of this segment. Uh, we shall now take a quick break and when we come back we will talk about the next segment which is about child trafficking in the UK. We'll be focusing a little bit um, on uh, Mo Farah's story who was trafficked to the UK as we as we know as a child and then we'll um, go into discussion about what um, can actually be done now or what is being done now to actually uh, stop uh, um, incidents like that uh, happening. Um, so um, uh, a lot of discussion around child trafficking. Please do join us in that by calling us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall be back right after this quick break. Allah. 
أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. The Holy Quran states Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth. Anur is that being through whose light a physically blind person sees, and a person who has gone astray. Finds guidance. It is that being who is apparent and through whom all things are manifested. His being is apparent in himself and makes things evident for others as well. The true light is God, which can be perceived in everything by those with insight. However, one who is devoid of spiritual sight cannot see it. A believer is firm on the belief that the universe that can be observed, as well as the universe that cannot be observed, is created by God in order to give an understanding of this light. God sends His chosen people who spread the nur, which comes down from the heavens throughout the world. The promised Messiah, on whom be peace, writes, That light of high degree that was bestowed on perfect man was not in angels, was not in the stars, was not in the moon was not in the sun, was not in the oceans or the rivers, was not in rubies or emeralds, or sapphires or pearls. In short, it was not in any earthly or heavenly object. It was only in perfect man, whose highest and loftiest and most perfect example was our Lord and Master, the Chief of the Prophets, the Chief of all living ones, Muhammad, the Chosen One. Peace and blessings of Allah be on him. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, set the most excellent example and the highest standard of nur which was established as a reflection of the light of God and which will continue till the day of judgment. The nur he received 
was conveyed to his companions and established excellent morals amongst them, so much so that he likened them to the stars. After the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, the reflection of God's light was the promised Messiah on whom be peace. This was due to complete subordination of his master. Not only did God fill the promised Messiah on whom be peace with Nur that was sent down more than 1,400 years ago, he also granted him the station to spread this Nur. The promised Messiah on whom be peace wrote that no one knew him and God compelled him out of his solitude and told him that he would bestow upon him honor and make him renowned all over the world. It is a way of God that when he adorns someone with nur, he manifests it to the world. After all, when the worldly light has a capacity to spread, how can the light of God stay hidden? You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Um, welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show, um, live from the South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Recently, um, as most of us would know, four-time Olympic gold medalist Mo Farah revealed he was trafficked to the UK as a child and made to work as a domestic servant. This segment looks into details of his story as well as risks of child trafficking in the UK. But first, how do we define child trafficking? So trafficking is where children and young people are tricked, forced or persuaded to leave their homes and are moved or transported and then exploited, forced to work or sold. A few weeks ago, Olympian Sir Mo Farah revealed he was a victim of child trafficking and that his real name is not Muhammad Farah. His real name at birth was Hussain Abdi Kahin. He revealed that he was separated from his mother and brought to the UK illegally and his name was changed to the name of another child called Muhammad Farah and was forced to work as a domestic servant. He was motivated to open up about his experience of being child trafficked by his four children. Although he has been truthful, truthful about his experience now, he still believes that there is a real risk. He believed uh, at that time anyway that, his re- that there was a real risk that his British nationality could be removed. However, the Home Office uh, later said that no action shall be taken. His story is featured in a documentary called The Real Mofera and can be watched on BBC iPlayer. Unseen UK told BBC News exclusively that it saw a 20% rise in calls and a 15% rise in overall contact, including through their website and app, as a result uh, or after this documentary was published. 
The charity's director, Justine Carter, said some callers specifically said Sir Mo, Mo Farah had inspired them to reach out. Unseen UK told BBC News that in the week following Sir, Mo, Sir Mo's revelation, which was first publicised on 11th July, 231 people called it modern called it modern slavery and exploitation helpline, compared to 192 the previous week. A total of 368 people contacted them on all of their platforms in that week compared to 319 the week before. Uh, so that is a little bit of the context uh, to the story that uh, we're talking about. Uh, let me go straight now to our um, first guest for this segment, Patricia, uh, Patricia Durr who is the Chief Executive Officer at Every Child Protected Against Trafficking UK, or ECPAT UK. Patricia has over 25 years public service uh, in social justice, safeguarding and child rights sectors, uh, and a leading high-profile rights-based campaigning, advocacy and uh, policy work experience. Aslam alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hello, thank you. Excellent, Patricia. Um, so uh, tell us a little more about um, uh, the organization that you had, Every Child Protected Against Trafficking. Yes, th thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, we're a children's rights charity um, and we seek to ensure that children everywhere enjoy their rights to be protected and to live lives free from trafficking and exploitation, which I know you're talking about today on your show. Um, we're also part of an international network um, mm -hmm. of um, ECPAT International, which operates in over 108 countries. Um, and we have a sort of integrated approach to things, which means that we do direct work with um, children and young people themselves who have been victims of trafficking. We also do um, a training of professionals to improve practice and, and understanding, and we do that with young people too. Um, and we also have a research and policy. Um, we're very much an evidence-based organisation. And fundamentally, we're campaigning. We, we want to make change and make improvements so that we can better protect children young people and end child trafficking. We were all shocked when we heard, um, and lots of uh, people were actually, when we heard about uh, uh, Samuel, heard from Samuel Farah that yeah. he was trafficked. Uh, were you surprised or, or, or shocked? Um, I mean, I think it's always shocking and we must hmm. never kind of lose that really because child trafficking is child abuse. And so... I think the importance of Samo's um, sharing of, of, of what happened to him is is really helping people to understand the reality for children. And mm. um, I think that has been really key because we often use big words like trafficking, exploitation, abuse, but mm. we sort of, it, it stops us sometimes from understanding what actually happened. So him talking about himself as a nine-year-old child who was... Um, you know, kind of brought somewhere without, obviously children can't consent to this. He he had no idea what was going on and, and also really brings home the the understanding that children are are reliant on us as adults and, and, and the systems that we put in place to protect them. So I think his courage was really um, astounding um, to, to do this because of, obviously it's, it's difficult to talk about these things. There's a lot mm. of trauma involved. Obviously, for him, there was a lot of secrecy. He was told to say certain things, which is often very common 
in these sorts of cases because it's based on that sort of power and control and coercion. He was, you know, to the point of having his identity stripped away from him. So I think bringing it home to have that platform, that public platform and respect that he does have, and then to talk about something that's so difficult um, is really, really important. And and we know from the young people we work with just what impact that had on them. Because often when you're experiencing um, abuse, you feel very alone. And, and mm. to know that somebody with that profile is able to talk about what happened was just so important for them. Also brings home the point, I think, uh, Patricia, that somebody of that profile can actually, uh, could actually have been through such circumstances. Um, uh, you know, a celebrity yeah. like him, you know, you, as you said very rightly that, you know, we use these big words, exploitation, and we think that, you know, this is this is for another planet almost you know this this sort of thing uh, yes. probably used to happen in the um, um, in the 18th century but not anymore and yet here you have a you know a celebrity um, who um, who was trafficked so so this thing yes. is is probably a lot brings home the point actually that it's it's a lot more prevalent than we actually ever thought I think that I think that's absolutely right, and it's important to remember this can happen to anybody. Hmm. Um, you know, any child can be uh, vulnerable to this, and, and and often what's talked about is criminal gangs. Um, you know, there, there's kind of a lot of talk about that, but in this case, as in many cases, really, this involved you know one person, one family, a, a, you know, somebody operating on their own, but seeking to exploit somebody, and that's the key around this kind of um, crime, and it is a crime. Um, and I think um, we don't really fully understand the prevalence of it, um, but I think what's important to acknowledge is our awareness of it has grown so much, and that, you know, that is that is a really important factor. We, you know, we now understand that, um, you know, this is, trafficking isn't just about people crossing national borders. It can happen within country it can happen in the same street um, the, the 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 point of it is that it's somebody who is exerting power and control for the purposes of their own gain and for the purposes of exploitation and there are many different forms of trafficking and um, you know traffic that we, our, our, our awareness of how um, children particularly can be um, criminally exploited has grown you know we know we understand that you know children being kind of forced to beg or to get involved in drug kind of offences is one part of that. There's sexual exploitation and in Samo Farah's case, domestic servitude, which is often a very hidden problem too because it's in the home um, and, uh, you know, kind of behind closed doors. So I I think you're right, the prevalence of it, we don't fully understand. Um, The latest figures, if that's of interest, show that there were 5,468 um, ident- children identified as potential victims in the UK in 2021. And that figure has been going up year on year. Um, and partly that's a good thing because it means awareness, you know, we're picking things up quickly. But also we know that it doesn't, it doesn't tell us the full picture either. Uh, what more needs to be done to tackle child trafficking in general? So, I mean, I think that's a big question. I think, as I've said, the, the awareness is really important. Um, but I think fundamentally, in, rela- in respect to children, we need to kind of focus on children and we need to ensure that 
every child, no matter where they're from, how they got here or who they are or how old they are, that they are treated as children first. And we, we have a sort of a safeguarding approach to them. Um, I think quite often children are getting lost in very adult kind of um, narratives, a lot of political narratives. They get lost in immigration system. They get lost in the kind of, you know, they're often criminalised for offences have been committed as part of their own exploitation. And um, so I think, you know, we've, we've, we've gone a long way in the UK over many years to understand um, child protection better, to put in place systems and structures to deal with that, as well as understanding modern slavery and trafficking more. But I think we're on a, we're, on a, we're, we're kind of um, rolling back on much of that at the moment. And it's really concerning, um, you know, kind of the hostility around, um, kind of, you know, people seeking asylum, you know, it all gets kind of muddled. And I think for us, the most important thing is to focus on the child. And, um, you know, it's really important. We've just done some research actually around this, talking to young people, and they're feeling and being safe is the absolute key for them. And, and if they don't feel safe, they're not going to come forward for help and support. And that that is a dreadful situation to be in. And on the support sort of question, um what are the support networks available for victims of child trafficking? Yeah, again, great question. Um, and I think it's important to understand that children are in different kind of situations. So for some children, young people who are being exploited, they are living in their families um, and the, the, the abuse is happening outside of their families. And often they're older children, so they're teenagers, and it can be quite difficult um, to get the support systems in quickly enough but we know that they need to be there and we need to understand that more so things like having good um youth provision youth groups youth clubs all of that sort of thing available for young people um and then there are children who are who are um, separated from their families which is a big risk factor for for trafficking um and they obviously need um you know they're kind of a safe place to be um, a home, a family, a, you know, whatever kind of situation is best for them. But I think fundamentally it's about each child's needs being assessed. Um, there's no specialist support available really for child victims of trafficking. And we really need to improve that. We need space for them to recover. We need access to mental health services for them. And I think for us at Ecopat UK, we run a youth programme um, and we run youth groups for young people who have been affected by exploitation. And I think the biggest difference that they tell us it makes is, is that they're not having to keep telling their stories over and over again. They, they come to us, they have peer support groups, um, and they're being understood um, and, and able to kind of move on from that. So I think that kind of understanding and not having to keep repeating, you know, what's happened to you is really important to recovery. It certainly is. Well, Patricia Durr, thank you so much for taking the time out speaking to us this morning and um, hopefully we can speak in the very near future. And um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. That's Patricia Durr, Chief Executive Officer at Every Child Protected Against Trafficking. We'll take a short break now and after the break we'll continue with this segment. So stay tuned. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. In order to establish the oneness of God, it is of utmost importance that one should love God to one's full capacity. And this love cannot be verified unless it reaches its perfection in a practical form. It cannot be proved with lip profession. You know, 
If somebody just talks of sugar, he cannot find the taste of sweetness in his mouth. Or, if somebody expresses the feeling of friendship, but does not help his friend in times of need, he cannot be called a true friend. Likewise, if somebody just talks of the oneness of God, but does not love him as he should, it cannot be of any avail. What I really mean is that practice is very important along with the precept. That is why it is necessary that you should dedicate your lives in the way of God. And this is the real Islam for which I have been sent to the world. Thus, he who does not come near this fountain that God has made to flow is very unfortunate. Assalamu alaikum and the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to the breakfast show here at The Voice of Islam. Just before the break, we were speaking with uh, one of our guest callers in Patricia Durr, who is the Chief Executive Officer at Every Child Protected Against Trafficking. Um, and she was helping us understand the issue at hand. But it's time now that we uh, move towards an Islamic perspective um, and what Islam has to say on the issue. In chapter 90, verse 13 to 21, Allah the Almighty states, And what should make thee know what the ascent is? It is the freeing of a slave, or freeing a day of hunger, an orphan near of kin, or a poor man lying in the dust. Again, he should have been of those who believe and exhort one another to perseverance and exhort one another to mercy. These are the people of the right hand, but those who disbelieve our signs, they are the people of the left hand. Around them will be a fire closed over. The Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has been reported to have said that, and it's narrated by Ubaidah, uh, son of uh, Walid, it states that we once met Abdul Yasir, a companion of the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He was accompanied by a slave, and we saw that he wore a striped garment, coupled with a Yemenite garment, and so did his slave. And I said to him, Uncle, why did you not take the striped garment of your slave and give the Yemenite garment to him, or take his Yemenite garment for yourself and give him your striped garment of the same kind? Nabuliyas had laid his hand on my head and blessed me and said, Dear nephew, my eyes have seen and my ears have heard, and my mind remembers that the Holy Prophet of Islam, with the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, used to enjoin that give to your slaves the same food that you yourselves eat and give them the same garment that you yourselves wear and therefore prefer to give of my worldly possessions an equal share to my slave rather than lose any part of my reward on the day of judgment and so what we find here is that when it it came to the treatment of slaves during the time um, of the early prophet where having a slave uh, was a, a sense of employment for those people um, um, to a particular part of the population the rights were equal and what the master wore we find from what the holy prophet peace be upon him instructed was that what the master wore uh, similar was to be offered to the slave 
The Prophet in the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, states that remember that a Muslim should be ever ready to discharge the rights of God and the rights of mankind, just as one verbally regards God uh, one and without any partner in his person and attributes. One should also demonstrate this by practice and should treat his creation with kindness and compassion. And he further states that until your dealings with each other are not in order, dealing with God cannot be in order. And although in both of these rights God has the great right, but to have clear dealing with his creation is akin to be a reflection of it. And a person who does not have clear dealings with his brother cannot also pay the dues of God. So in essence, the whole act, the whole act of um, trafficking and exploiting um, people that you know do make um, the journey across or or of a young age, you know, has completely been stripped away from the teachings of Islam. Islam has been a religion from its very inception which promotes the rights of all and doesn't advocate for any sorts of exploitation. Um, and this was the practice of the Holy Prophet Islam where even during an era of rampant slavery, he very much so um, calculated the effects of reducing slavery and made sure that um, this was done in a procedure which would um, not bring about further disruption to the society at large. And so what we find within the Holy Quran on various occasions um, is that as a source of um, uh, punishment, one could say, or as a source of um, reflection for an individual who has done a sin, the, the punishment would be to free a slave. And through this manner, the Holy Prophet, the peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, uh, brought about an end to slavery, a very calculated, very um, sort of steady release of slaves. The Holy Quran states in chapter 8, verse 68, it is not lawful for any prophet before you, nor is it for you to take prisoners without engaging in a war. If there is a war, and that too religious, Prisoners can be captured on the battlefield. And so the condition laid down in this verse does not permit anyone to imprison the civilian population of any country where war has not been declared, nor does it permit enslaving any citizen of the opponent who has not been part of the attacking force. So the imprisonment of those declared and the imprisonment of those who are actively engaged in combat is allowed because they would otherwise go back to join forces in attack. Um, and one last verse from the Holy Quran, it's in chapter 4, verse 37, it states that, Worship Allah and associate not with him, and show kindness to parents and kindred and orphans, and the needy, and to the neighbor that is a kinsman, and the neighbor that is a stranger, and the companion by your side, and the wayfarer, and those whom your right hands possess. Surely Allah loves not the proud and the boastful. And this one verse is sort of the essence of what Islam is all about. Making sure that we all look after one another, regardless of whether we know them or not, regardless of whether they are related to us or not. And making sure that you know equal rights are distributed amongst you know, society as a whole. And no form of exploitation is enacted upon those people that you know have been oppressed and um, 
you know, if nothing is done, will remain oppressed. So this is Islam's teaching. And Islam, you know, we've always said is, is, a, is more than a religion because Islam, you know, from the way it was uh, formed, the way it's been in practice um, upon its inception, transformed the whole nation. You know, a nation where we saw barbarians, quite frankly, um, transformed into the, the most noble and civilized people, um, which, you know, history remembers and commemorates to this date. Brother Daniel, what's your uh, take on uh, this whole uh, Sir, Sir Mo Farah, um, you know, with his experiences of, um, you know, being trafficked and being, um, you know, put through that, that sort of system as a whole? I think it's very tragic. I think it's uh, it's very sad that we that we find ourselves um, um, in this situation. You know, in a, in what we call a postmodern society, that the, these things are still happening. He was trafficked in the nineties, so you know, this is nineteen nineties, not uh, you know seventeen nineties. Mm. So uh, it's 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 really sad that this um, uh, and and. You know, who knows? This is this is still happening. This, this is, is still one case, yeah. Exactly, this is just one case, and, and and one case which has really got the limelight because of uh, who Mofara is. Mm. But what about the countless others? What about you know children who's probably still being trafficked for sexual exploitation or for you know domestic servitude or for any other reason? And God knows, uh, how, you know, what is the extent of that still happening even in uh, 2022 and the numbers that we that we're given. Um, uh, whether or not they reflect the true picture, so yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's very sad, and I think um, uh, what you said about um, uh, uh, about looking at it from an Islamic perspective that it's um, it, it's it's just plain wrong from an Islamic perspective, and and the the wisdom uh, the Holy Prophet actually uh, maybe some blessings of Allah be upon him uh, used and, and and deployed to um, in in a very a primitive society of 1400 years ago where he he said that you know uh, if you want to do this uh, free a slave if you want to do that free a slave mm-hmm. if you want to free yourself of sin uh, free a slave so he he, he really made it um um it was an incentive it, exactly he he incentivized absolutely i mean that's that's the word he incentivized um uh, something which uh, which uh, Probably for years and years, for centuries, yeah, centuries. and uh, which we are still an issue. We're still grappling with in mm. our in our societies today. So, I think that's the best example that we can follow. No, exactly. You bang on there, and you know, it's. Um, I think this will give other people the confidence to come out. Of those um, people that have been trafficked, um, you know, to mm. share the experiences, so that you know, this whole um, system of being trafficked is, you know, one day, inshallah, you know, eradicated. Because it's um, you know detrimental to various various lives, um, you know those people that still are in that system and they can't f- seem to find a way that way out is um, unfathomable for you know some of us. And if I could give another example, I think uh, uh, the, those people who have been trafficked by smugglers these days uh, to cross the channel, for example, yeah. in in you know in in very um, uh, in unusable boats. Uh, that I that is an example of trafficking as well, and that I think is is, uh, is something that uh, 
the government needs to do something seriously about unfortunately the government seems to be headed the other way yeah and and they they want to ship the, them off uh, uh, to another place Rwanda, Rwanda uh, in yeah. particular and and for, so so that's you know another form of uh, of trafficking trafficking which we're seeing you know in front of our very eyes we're seeing uh, people babies losing their lives mm. and uh, unfortunately nothing is being done about it you know there sometimes uh, there's it seems like there's so many problems um hmm. the solutions are very much so limited but um you know it's bringing about that awareness having these these discussions which will one day you know enable you know um for these um topics to you know have the level of awareness that they most certainly require and need But that brings us to today's end. Um it's been an absolute pleasure hosting the program with yourselves, uh, Daniel. A huge thank you to thank our you. listeners for staying tuned in from 7 a.m. all the way to 9 a.m. Uh, a huge thanks to our guest callers who've helped us navigate through the segments, uh, who've shared the knowledge, wisdom and expertise. And a a, a a thanks to our uh, production team in our producer Simba Bahram Rahman, researchers Faizal Mansoor and Wajiha Harun and brother in the tech department. But from all of us here, thank you so much for listening and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.